Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather, and last week we left off with Chris being the least helpful husband and father of missing girls in the history of mankind. In fact, he was actually planning on heading to work the next day, but promised to leave if his head wasn't there. Don't worry, his work was like, I don't think so, stay home. Spoiler alert, he did. Today we go over August 14th and 15th of 2018, aka day two and three of Chris Watts' missing wife and daughters. We don't screw around with small talk here because absolutely nobody cares, so let's dive in. on August 14th, almost exactly 24 hours since Shanann was last seen by anybody, the officer calls Chris again to get information for the girls' missing persons reports, like their heights and weights, etc. He called the number that Chris had given him, but the line would just go to dead air when it connected. At 2.05 a.m., just five minutes later, the officer got a call from Chris from a different number, which winds up being his work phone. So now we know he has two phones. Chris said that there was something wrong with his cell phone, but, I mean, obviously something was going through because he knew to call the officer back, but whatever. Chris gives the officer all the information that he needs, adding that Shanann has a scar on her forehead above the bridge of her nose that goes up and down and not side to side, in case you were wondering. He said that she got it from an accident a long time ago and that you could only see it if she got heated or if she had been in the sun too long, and... Literally, nobody cares. She's not Harry Potter, and that's not going to solve this case. Chris never asked this officer, who called in the middle of the night, mind you, if they had found his missing wife and daughters, or even if they had any new information. Two hours later, arguably still in the middle of the night, Shanann's mom calls the detective and tells him that she and her husband believe that foul play is involved and Chris had something to do with it. They say he's acting weird and out of the ordinary, and she told the cop that it doesn't seem right that he keeps telling people that he has to go to work. And she's right, because who does that? The weirdest thing she says, though, is that she's worried Chris is going to go pour oil on the girls' bodies and dispose of them. What? That's pretty freaking specific. Like, that had to have been brought up before, or she fell down some dark Google hole that she could not get out of. Her mom calls the detective again, saying that her husband just got off the phone with Chris and that he's not shedding a single tear over his missing family. She also said that Chris called a neighbor and said that he feels like police are watching him on his involvement in this. Duh. The officer basically tells her to play nice and not to tell Chris the direction of this case. It's not uncommon for police to selectively release information so that a suspect doesn't have an opportunity to get a step ahead of them. Not that this would be an issue with Chris because we know he's stupid. At 9.15 a.m., a detective has Nathaniel, the neighbor, check 1.45 a.m., 5.30 a.m., and 12.47 p.m. on the cameras. Basically, the time Shanann got home, the time Chris left the house, and the time that he got that garage alert. Now, police have already gone through this footage, so it may have just been an effort to freak Chris out by seeing police at his neighbor's house again, but who knows, and if so, I like their style. During all of this time, officers have been keeping a 24-7 watch on the house. They were set back from the house in unmarked cars, so Chris had no idea that this was going on whatsoever. 
Right before noon, Chris gives consent for canines to do a full, complete, total search of his home. The house was super clean, and I'm talking cleaning lady clean. Like, there was a strong chemical smell and vacuum marks in the carpet, so obviously they had a bomb-ass vacuum. Chris had also made the girl's bed and done the rest of the laundry, and tell me what man do you know goes on a cleaning spree when his family is missing? A guilty one. The canine officers ask for anything that were only touched by each victim. They do this to get a scent of the victim and then have the dog track it. But say Chris touched it too, then the dog would also wind up tracking his scent and that would accomplish absolutely nothing. The detective says that every time they ask Chris about any item, Chris would tell them how he had somehow also touched it. Dirty clothes in the hamper. They were mixed with his. The girl's clothes. He said he had picked them up. The girl's bedroom. He said he had made both girls' bed and had touched the covers and pillows. Awesome. Basically, he was no help at all, per usual. Eventually, they were able to use the scent from two pairs of shoes that the girls wore to a pool party the Saturday before, and that pair of Shanann sandals that were by the front door. As the canine dog comes in, one of the local news reporters is asked to step out. Chris followed the reporter out, and one of the officers followed Chris out and let him know that he was welcome to stay inside, but we all know that he cannot handle being inside his house when the police are there, so instead he did that infamous porch interview. During this super awkward interview, he is emotionless, crossing his arms, swaying back and forth, and taking super loud gulps. You can literally hear them. He's super matter-of-fact. He got home at 2. He left at 5.15. Her friend got to the house at 12.10. Okay. I mean, this isn't court, though. This is supposed to be a plea for your family and not a list of alibis. Later in the same interview, he gets even more specific, saying Shanann got in at 1.48 and got into bed around 2 a.m. When they ask what he thinks happened, he legitimately almost cracks a smile and then starts throwing around ideas and theories about what he thinks might have happened. And this is where I got big mad. Denver 7 gets some balls, though, and asks if he and Shanann got into an argument before he left. And this idiot literally doesn't say no. He said that it wasn't an argument, but that it was an emotional conversation and that he would leave it at that. And then he changed the subject as fast as he possibly could, just saying that he just wants them back. And I bet he does. The police are super thorough. And when the first canine finishes up, they actually have a second canine come in. One of the canine dogs showed interest in Chris's work truck, but nothing else around the neighborhood. They said that the dog alerted to the scent of the missing three, but not to human remains. But no one's allowed to be in his personal truck but him, and the dog's alerting to the scent of all three missing girls. Okay. But it gets better. Another cadaver dog actually gives a soft alert to Chris's work truck, but never went inside, and the vehicle doors were closed. And this one is a dog trained in detecting human remains, so that truck's getting a lot of attention. And this is something I found really interesting. They used a canine that was trained in tracking scent pools, which basically means that they can smell a struggle. I am deceased. This is the coolest thing I have ever heard. 
So this super dog showed interest in the unmade bed in the basement, creepy, and at the bottom of the stairs, which remember is where Shanann's suitcase was left. It sounds like she could barely make it into the door without something going on. Unfortunately, Wonder Dog made no final trend alerts, so we're kind of back at square one. At 3.15 p.m., Shanann's mom calls again, and this woman has no quit. She asked them to check her daughter's luggage upstairs, which was in her bedroom. It was from the trip she had taken before this last one because she didn't think it had been touched by anybody. And I'm not sure what she thought they might find, but maybe she caught wind of Chris making excuses and them not being able to find anything that Shanann had touched that he hadn't. Officers stay at the house with Chris throughout the entire day while they literally search everything ever. They make small talk with him and try to be empathetic about how hard it must be that his family's missing. And they pretty much all note that Chris just didn't seem to react appropriately at all or show any emotion whatsoever. They said he was really tense. His posture was super erect and defensive. He avoided eye contact anytime they tried to talk to him and he was always looking around and he had his arms crossed most of the time because we know he has no idea what to do with his hands. Fast forward to 9.15 that night, Chris's phone is taken and copied onto a USB and given to investigators. And I cannot wait until we dive into the dumpster fire that was his cell phone activity, but that's another episode. That night, he has a little sleepover with his friends, Amanda and Nick Thayer, and I always wonder, knowing what they know now, if they have legitimate nightmares about how south this night could have gone for them. At 6 a.m. on the 15th, officers do yet another consensual search of the home. They bag some electronics, a book called Hold Me Tight that was still in its Amazon box, found in the recycling bin, a blue glove from on top of the fridge, and two pillowcases and a sheet that they found in the kitchen trash can. And then this happens. A woman named Nicole Kessinger walks into the police station and identifies herself as Chris's mistress, and then she has a serious case of word vomit. She says her and Chris were in frequent contact during the six weeks leading up to the girl's disappearance. They were actually visiting family without Chris in North Carolina, but we'll dig deeper into that later. Nicole said that Chris was trying to make the marriage work, but that Shanann was the one who wasn't having it, and that her and Chris were putting the house up for sale when they got back. Cough, August 13th, cough. Nicole and Chris go on planning their future together, and he tells her that he wants a two-bedroom apartment in Brighton, and that he and Shanann had already agreed to 50-50 custody of the girls and their soon-to-be boy, Nico. Hold on. Chris is about to have three kids, and he's looking for a two-bedroom apartment? Okay. We'll continue to pretend that this was not premeditated. Nicole offers up, We never talked about marriage, meeting the kids, or cutting the mom out. It was never like that. That's super specific. But you also know her name. It's Shanann. Nicole actually found him an apartment, and they had planned on going to look at a few more. He had told her that his budget was $1,100 to $1,400 a month. Nicole said that he never mentioned his bankruptcy, credit surprise, or Shanann's pregnancy with her. And I mean, she's a liar, but we'll talk about that later. Chris told her that they were broke all the time and it was because of Shanann's spending habits. He told his mistress that Shanann was bossy and that he wasn't heard any time that he tried to voice an opinion, that Shanann never acknowledged him. And we've all seen the videos. We know that she acknowledges him all the time. She literally repeats herself over and over that he's the best thing that ever happened to her. 
She says Shanann never let him openly communicate, that she would talk shit about him in front of the kids and they were starting to repeat it. Whatever. He told her that one time he tried to ask Shanann for something and that she told him to shut up and that he didn't know anything. But wait, I thought Chris was the one trying to make it work, but here he is complaining his ass off about his wife apparently being freaking horrible. Okay. Anyways. Chris apparently told Nicole that he was always more into Shanann than she was into him, and that's probably the least comforting sentiment to tell your mistress. Pretty much ever. She said they talked about marriage offhanded, but let's rewind. And I quote, We never talked about marriage, meeting his kids, or cutting the mom out. It was never like that. You're a liar. Nicole says she first met him in late May or early June and that he just recently told her that he loved her on August 1st, less than two weeks ago. Their sex life was banging, pun intended, and they last had sex on August 11th, which was just two days before that his family up and vanished. Chris would apparently come to the office that she worked in three or four days a week before going into the fields. They both worked for the same company. But she said that she already knew that he had planned to go to the field Monday morning instead of going to the office. Chris texted Nicole throughout the day on the 13th. Yes, the day that his family went missing and the cops were in and out of his house. She said that nothing was alarming at all and that at 345 she got a text from him about the girls being gone. And then he asked her to call him and she says that's when she knew that something was wrong. But they talked on the phone all the time. So she's literally just being dramatic here. She called him at four and he said police were there. He continued to text her after that about who was there and what they were doing, but says that even she was worried about Shanann because she had left her phone behind and she knew that Shanann was always on her phone. And let's be honest, you only know that because you've probably Facebook stalked her a hundred times. At 11 a.m., Chris goes into the police station to take a voluntary polygraph test. He wasn't wearing a wedding ring, and he tells his account of what led up to Shanann and the girl's disappearance. He said he waited up for Shanann, but her plane was delayed, so instead of getting home around 11 p.m. on the 12th, she was actually going to come home around 2 a.m. on the 13th. He says that the doorbell alert showed Shanann walking into the house at 1.48 a.m., which we already knew, and that she went inside and got into bed. His alarm went off at 4 a.m. He got up, brushed his teeth, and put on deodorant. He said he doesn't shower until after work. He says Shanann told him to wake her up when he got up so that she could shower and, quote-unquote, get the airport off of her. He said he woke her up after he got ready, and they talked about selling the house and separating. He says it was emotional, and they were both crying. He said she told him she was going to take the kids to a friend's house and come home later that day. He said that was fine and went downstairs packed his lunch, filled up his water jug, got his computer, loaded his truck, and headed to work. Everybody completely forgetting that it is the kid's first day of school today, so apparently he's down with that. He says he hadn't heard from Shanann by 7.40 in the morning and didn't know where she was going, so he sent her a text asking her to tell him where she took the kids. Shanann didn't reply, and he said it was normal for her to not text him back because her priority was always to contact her direct salespeople before anybody else. 
At noon, he realized he still hadn't heard from her and called her and texted saying, hey, call me. At 12.10 p.m., Chris got a notification that Nicole Atkinson was at his front door. So he called her and was like, hey, what's going on? And Nicole said she hadn't heard from Shanann the entire day. And Chris was like, okay, this is kind of strange. Nicole said that Shanann's car was in the garage and her shoes were still by the door. So he says he left work and headed straight home. And Nicole said there would be a police officer there when he got there. He said when he got home, her car was there, car seats were there, her purse was there, her phone was on the couch, her wedding ring was sitting on the nightstand, and quote-unquote, there's no sign of Bella Celeste her anywhere. He started contacting anyone with car seats or children in general, and no one had seen her or the girls. He said they viewed a neighbor's camera and that there was no sign of her or the girls leaving the house, and that... She wouldn't just leave everything behind, especially the girl's medications, although she does take Imitrex for migraines, and he says that was missing. He said the only thing missing were the girl's blankies. He said they took them whenever they left the house. Cece was missing her Yankees blanket, a little dinosaur, a turtle, and an animated dog, and Bella's swan blanket and dinosaur were also missing. These are super specific things to remember or even notice are missing from a child's room. Children have so many toys. Who would notice a dinosaur missing? Anyways, he says he left all the lights on in the house in case they came home that night. He laid in bed but says that he didn't sleep. Chris said he hoped that Shanann would buy a burner phone just to tell him she's okay, as if she's like in a gang or some crime mob boss. Chris goes into how much he misses telling the kids that they need to eat and them throwing chicken nuggets at him, that he wasn't turning on their rain machine, reading to them, kissing them goodnight, giving them a nighttime snack. He wasn't giving them their medicine, getting them dressed for bed, and didn't need to turn on their monitors to watch them. I'm already exhausted. I think we can all agree that their nighttime routine was set up by a very type A person. Chris said he actually didn't want to stay in the house that night, but that he knew he had to in case they came home. When the police released the missing persons reports on the girls the following day, he said that's when it finally hit him that something had happened to them and police were legitimately concerned. He hopes that wherever they are, they're safe. I'm sure he does. He says not being able to tuck his kids into bed is heart-wrenching, earth-shattering even, because those are his kids. He made them. He says they were just fine in North Carolina for five weeks and he was able to FaceTime them every night and not knowing where they are now is a nightmare. They start discussing the separation he mentioned that they had talked about the morning she went missing and Chris said that he decided he wanted it during the five weeks that Shanann was in North Carolina, saying he and Shanann could feel the disconnect through their calls and texts, they spoke less and less over time and it was less and less lovey-dovey, but that the relationship had actually gotten less hot and heavy over the past year. He said they stopped going out on dates once the girls were born and stopped having deep conversations, period. When he flew out to North Carolina to see her and the girls, he landed and gave her a hug and a kiss, and everything just felt different. They didn't sleep in the same room any of the nights that he was there, which I'm sure was super awkward for everybody else. He slept with the kids or on the couch. She accused him of cheating, and he said it would never happen, and that's just not the kind of guy he is, that he respects his wife, and she respects him. He says the last time that they had sex was May 2018 when they conceived their son. Before then, they had sex once or twice a week, but would sometimes go a month or two without having sex at all, saying that he is the one who usually initiated it. 
Chris said that Shanann said the girls couldn't visit his parents anymore after his mother served ice cream with peanuts in it when Cece is allergic. Chris was hurt because his parents wanted to be able to see their grandbabies. He said they talked every night that he was in North Carolina, which seems pretty obvious because they're literally both in North Carolina, but he actually says that it was mostly through text. Chris says that they were with family, so most of the time they weren't alone, and when they did text, it was usually about their relationship, where it was going, and talking about what a separation would look like with three kids. He told Shanann he didn't feel like he can be himself anymore or the person that he felt that she needed him to be. He says that he and Shanann wanted to see if they could make it work. She suggested they read a book on relationships and go to counseling, aka the book Hold Me Tight, that was in the Amazon box found in the recycling bin. He said he was open to the idea of counseling, but didn't want to do it. He felt too disconnected to think counseling would help. And I think he doesn't understand what the term open to the idea means because that's not it. Shanann leaves on August 10th for a work trip. He says he would send her photos of the girls while she was gone, but he didn't FaceTime with her because when she was gone, the girls would get upset that mommy wasn't home. He tells the investigators that on the 11th, him and some co-workers left for a Colorado Rockies game at 5 p.m. It started at 6.10, and him and Cody and Sam went to the Lazy Dog before the game. He says he got tickets from a raffle at work, that their seats were the third baseline 10 rows up, They won after a walk-off three-run home run in the bottom of the ninth, and he says he called Shanann on the way home to ask how much he should pay the babysitter and got home around 11 p.m. And Chris's tell that he's lying is that he gives way too much information, so spoiler alert, huge lie. On the 12th, he's at Jeremy's house, a friend, from 1.15 to 5 p.m. When they got home, he gave the girls a bath, put lotion on them and their PJs on, Cece wore a nightgown with the drawing of a bird on it in a nighttime diaper. Bella had on a multicolored gown that said believe or had a unicorn on it. He said that the girls had cold pizza for lunch and dinner, and he FaceTimed Shanann's parents. The girls sat on their little couches, and he gave them snacks. He brushed their teeth, had them use the potty, and then put them to bed. Again, I am exhausted just listening to their nighttime routine. Bella actually got out of bed twice that night to see if her mom had come home yet, and Chris told her that when she woke up in the morning, mommy would be home. Shanann's flight got delayed. She didn't get home until around 2 a.m., and he says he felt her get into bed. He says he doesn't think she was using her cell phone in bed, which is the world's most random information to give. He says that she had an Apple Watch that she would take off and charge every night, and says that she only took off her wedding ring to color her hair, and that it was super weird that she had left her wedding ring behind. At 4 a.m. on the 13th, he got up and made a protein shake, packed lunch, filled his water jug, collected his book bag, computer, and put more tools into his truck. He woke her up, like she asked, by getting back into bed and rubbing her shoulders and head. He asked if she wanted a shower, and she said yes, and then he asked if they could talk for a bit, which is when he told her that they needed to sell the house and downsize. I'm sorry, this whole story just changed. Now he's doing all of this stuff before talking to Shanann instead of doing it afterwards. And now we're not talking about selling the house and a separation. We're talking about selling the house and getting a smaller one. Okay. 
Their current mortgage was $2,700 a month, and Shanann had actually already contacted the realtor last week. Then Chris drops the bomb on his tired and 15-week pregnant wife that their relationship just isn't working and the love they once had is gone. He says that she cried and asked if there was someone else, and he said no. Quote, unquote, this isn't like somebody came into my life and took me from you. There's no outside influence coming from this. And she believed him. They talked from 4.15 to 5 a.m., and he says that she said if they ever split, she would move back to North Carolina because she just couldn't afford to live in Colorado on her own. So he hoped they'd be able to sell the house and split the money and live close to one another and share the kids. He says they've never gotten physical ever, and they rarely even ever yell. Which conflicts with what Nathan said because he said that he had heard Chris yelling at Shanann loudly many times. Chris says he loaded his truck from 5.15 to 5.25 a.m. after backing it into the garage like an eighth of the way in. He then went to Servi 319, which is an oil field, first, and then got there around 6.45 a.m. McCoy, Parrish, and McNeil, who are people he works with, showed up about an hour later at 7.15 to 7.30 a.m. He texted them all and called his supervisor to let him know that he was there, and he stayed at Servi 319 until 8 a.m. Then he went to Servi 629 until 830. No one else was there. Then he went to Servi 1129 at 9 a.m. and left at 10 a.m. Then he drove to Servi 1029 and stayed there until he left at 1 p.m. He said that none of the girls had ever ridden in his truck because it was against the rules. He was the only person that was allowed to be in his work truck ever. Chris is asked if he spoke to the girls' Primrose School, and he said that he had called them to let them know they were likely going to be moving out of the area, but to keep the kids on the wait list, which is weird because they were already enrolled. They weren't on the wait list. The daycare actually charges on Monday, and that was supposed to be the girls' first day of school. They spent over $500 a week for the kids to go to this preschool, and he knew that they'd be living paycheck to paycheck when they started school again, which was supposed to be that day. Had the girls shown up, he would be out $500. This is a fiscally really convenient time for the girls to just not show up. Shanann had a compressed disc in her neck last year and the surgery cost a hundred grand. Their health insurance for the family is $500 a month through his work. Cece had endoscopies, allergy testing, correction of a block to your duct, and both Cece and Bella had their adenoids taken out and tubes put into their ears. Both girls had asthma inhalers and took Singular for their allergies, and both girls took acid reflex meds. Bills, bills, bills. Shanann did finances, so he said he didn't know how much medical debt that they were in, but they had actually filed for bankruptcy in June of 2015. They had eight to $10,000 of credit card debt and said almost all of their cards were maxed out. Shanann had just taken $10,000 out of Chris's 401k to catch up on their mortgage, which they were behind three months. And I have no idea how that happened. Thrive paid for their Lexus, so that wasn't a financial stress. Chris said that he had $2,000 in his Chase account and $1,500 in his USAA account. So in total, Chris had $3,500 to his name, period. He did have life insurance policies on the girls. Bella had a $20,000 policy, Cece had a $20,000 policy, and he said Shanann had a $50,000 to $100,000 policy, but if he's bringing up $100,000, I'm certain that's a $100,000 policy. 
And he said Shanann also had another life insurance policy that she had taken out on her own. Finally, after all this chit-chat, they finally give Chris the polygraph test, and it goes as follows. Did you physically cause Shanann's disappearance? No. Are you lying about the last time you saw Shanann? No. Do you know where Shanann is now? No. Turns out, deception was detected on all questions. When officers told him that it was clear he hadn't been honest, Chris was just like, okay... Detectives told him that they needed to know what actually happened, and he says, I didn't. I I didn't lie to you on the polygraph, I promise. Detectives told him that they appreciated him coming in, even though he knew he wasn't going to pass the test. They told him that holding on to his lie would do nothing for him, and he says he wasn't trying to cover anything up, and that he just wanted his wife and kids to come home. The detective said he knew they weren't coming home, and Chris just kept saying he hoped they would, and I'm sure he did. He said if he could have his babies back home, right then he would. He wants them back, he wants everyone back, and that's just the God's honest truth, and I'm sure it is, but what he has done, he has done. Then Chris comes out and says he cheated on Shanann and that he's not proud of it. He said he never went to the Rockies game, he instead went to dinner with his mistress, and the five weeks Shanann was gone, he was with his mistress. He said he did fall out of love with Shanann because he fell in love with his mistress. Chris didn't want to name her because he didn't want to quote-unquote ruin her life. That's super presumptive. If you haven't done anything, how is naming her going to ruin anyone's life? He said that Nicole, his mistress, took his breath away and he never thought anything like this would happen in a million years, that he never felt the same about anyone in his entire lifetime as he did about her. The detective asks again where the girls are and he says he doesn't know. And the affair was the only thing he was holding back. And the detective reminds him that the polygraph didn't ask about his infidelity at all. And that they'd known about Nikki all along. (laughs) Oh, shit. Please tell him that they have his text, Shanann's text, Nikki's text, and their Alexa, which, by the way, is trained to record distress. Holy crap, let me go unplug mine. Police again ask him to go over the morning that the girls went missing. He says he woke up at 4, woke Shanann up at 4.15. They talked about the house and the separation. Shanann asked him why he had a $68 dinner the other night and if there were two of them at dinner. And Chris told her that it was from his dinner with Nikki but denied the affair because they were both already crying very hard. Chris then told Shanann that he wanted to separate. Chris said Shanann had initiated selling the house a week ago by contacting Ann, the realtor, because they knew they couldn't afford to live on their own. Chris texted the realtor the morning the girls went missing, asking what she could do. Because that's what any good dad does when their entire family's missing. They asked Chris about the pregnancy, and he says that Shanann was 80-20 about the pros and cons, and that once they got pregnant, she told everyone that it was his idea. He said that he wanted a son, and when she found out she was pregnant, she told her friends that she was 70-30 against the pregnancy, and Chris said he didn't understand why she'd say that, and I don't understand why we're talking in fractions. 
The detective tells him that he's not making a ton of sense, and Chris says that he knows, that he promises he has nothing on his hands, that he did nothing to those kids or her to make them vanish. They ask if it was an accident, and Chris says he didn't do anything. Chris said he planned on getting his own place, sharing the kids 50-50, and taking things slow with Nikki to see if anything developed. The detective calls him out and says he finds it hard to believe that him and Shanann were both crying when he hadn't shed any tears in the last two days that they had interviewed him. The detective asked if Shanann did something to the girls and did he feel like he had to do something to Shanann. Chris said no. They were in the house when he left. The detective says that the only way they left was in his truck. And Chris says there's no way because I didn't just like throw them in my truck. Yeah, you did. The detective asked again if Shanann did anything, and he said he didn't think so because they both loved them with all their hearts. There's no way. The detective asked if something happened to his baby girls, and then he felt like he needed to take something in his own hands and deal with it. If he had to clean something up for Shanann, and Chris said she couldn't have. The detective tells him about a case where a mother smothered her two kids because he didn't want her husband to take them away from her. The detective says he believes either he or Shanann made a mistake and that he was getting concerned that Chris had done something to all three of them. He said he didn't do anything and the detective asked what Shanann did to the girls and Chris immediately asks for his dad. This is where I'm going to leave you today on part two of the polygraph slash confession. You're going to hear what he tells his dad and what he reveals to the police that he had done. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. And if you get true crime fever in between episodes, I actually do mini cases on my Instagram every Thursday at the Heather Ashley. Until then, we out. (laughs) 